Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Tortoise. Hello and welcome to Trendy from Tortoise. I'm John Curtis, Professor of Politics at Strathclyde University. And I'm Rachel Wolfe. I run Public First, a policy consultancy in Westminster. Now together, Rachel and I try to make sense of what's going on by looking at the trends and the numbers. And this week we are going to talk about immigration. We're going to talk about it in two halves. First of all, what actually has been happening, how many people have been coming into the country, who are they, how much of an aberration is this historically and in terms of other countries. And then we're going to talk about attitudes. What do people think about immigration, different kinds of immigrants, and how is that changing how governments act? Now, to help us understand the first part of that, what's actually happening, I'm delighted that we're joined by Madeline Sumption, who runs the Migration Observatory at Oxford University. And many of you may have heard her on the radio or seen her on TV explaining what's happening with the numbers. Madeline, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Great to have you, Madeline. So we always start this, Madeline, with our big numbers. What are the numbers that explain what's going on? So to talk about immigration numbers, where should we start? Well, I think we really have to start with 606,000, which is the quite unusual number that we got um, a few weeks ago for net migration in the UK. So that's uh, the number of people coming in minus the number of people going out uh, long term. It's never been so high. It's much higher than the kinds of levels we were seeing pre-Brexit when the numbers fluctuated in the region of 250 to 350,000. Just give us a bit of a historical sweep there. So um, when did we start having high net migration, even if we're talking about hundreds of thousands? When did it start to really rise? And how much of that was a deliberate decision on the part of the UK? Well, for a long time, the UK actually had negative net migration. So there were more people leaving than than coming in. In the you know, 60s or 70s, you'd often get uh, you know, negative net migration figures around 50,000 or so. Um, that then started, we started to get small positive figures in the 1980s, but it really, immigration really picked up in the late 1990s and early 2000s, when we started to see numbers of more like 150 to 200 thousand. And that was partly, um, there were some policy liberalisations under the new Labour government starting 1997. Um, but there were also just some changes in global trends. So actually quite a few countries saw uh, increasing immigration levels around that time, more people coming in for uh, for work, for the health service, and that kind of thing. And then we had another turning point um, in 2004 with the enlargement of the European Union. And there um, we started to get a lot more people migrating, particularly from Poland, which was the largest country newly joining the the EU. They had free movement rights to the UK. So Madeline, just before you come to the post-2016 period, we we have pre-2004, where you say for much of that period, we were a net exporter population. So the the kind of um, groups of migrants that are quite big in kind of popular imagination, like the Windrush generation, were actually 
in a period where we were losing more people than we were gaining. Then post-2004, the UK made a decision that they were going to have fewer restrictions on people coming in from Europe than other European countries. And that's when we first saw it rise. And, and at that point, most of those people were coming from Eastern Europe. Is that right? That's right. I mean, there were also people coming in from um, Western European countries. We'd al- always had some immigration from places like France or Germany or Spain. Um, but um, but the group that really drove the, the higher numbers in the mid 2000s uh, was particularly Poland, just because that was the country in Eastern Europe with the biggest uh, the biggest population. Um, and then they were joined later by other groups of uh, of EU migrants. So we, after the financial crisis, when the eurozone um, economies, particularly um, in southern Europe, were were not doing very well. Uh, we had an uptick in migration from uh, Italy, Spain, and Portugal. Um, then, around the same time, of course, you have Romania and Bulgaria um, getting access to uh, to free movement, and those numbers picked up. Particularly, the, the UK did impose restrictions on them, so so their um, uh, their access was was delayed until 2014. And at that point, we then also saw quite substantial numbers of people from from Romania. So, for all sorts of reasons. Um, including you know the uh, the financial crisis and its aftermath we then in that period leading up to the referendum in 2016 we had unusually high levels of eu migration in particular so what roughly was it in say 2014 so if it was net 250,000 or so post 2004 what did it got up to by 2014 so in that period just before the referendum, there are actually different uh, measures because the Office of National Statistics has been playing around with exactly how they produce the figures. But we were looking at numbers of um, of over 300,000, somewhere in the list of 300, 350,000 range uh, right before the referendum. So that, that was obviously the context going into the referendum. And I don't know if listeners remember David Cameron doing one of his uh, pro-EU speeches in the campaign and being attacked by an audience member for promising net tens of thousands, under a net 100,000 migration in his previous election manifesto. So we were, we were at sort of a few hundred thousand net at this point, And then Brexit happened. And what happened to migration after Brexit? non-EU migration was already starting to tick up um, in that period after after the referendum. And I expect we'll talk about uh, non-EU as well. And then, of course, you have the pandemic and Brexit around the same time. And there was a, a huge decline in immigration. I mean, the immigration system around the world, systems around the world ground to a halt during the pandemic for obvious reasons, the travel restrictions. Um, so actually very few people moved in 2020. During the pandemic, the new post-Brexit immigration system was introduced, which ended free movement, had a much more restrictive regime. So as we emerged from the pandemic uh, with the post-Brexit immigration system, actually EU migration um, remained very low. Um, and the estimates that we have at the moment suggest that it's actually still negative. So there are more EU citizens leaving the country than than coming in um, at the moment. That probably won't last uh, won't last forever. Um, but at the same time, the re- the big story in um, in immigration recently under the post Brexit system has been a really sharp increase in non EU migration um, for for various reasons. Some of it's Ukraine, some of it's people coming from Hong Kong under the humanitarian schemes for those two countries. But we've also seen a big increase in work and study migration under the new system. But it isn't also isn't it also true, Madeline, that when we introduced the new immigration system and came and came up with the same rules for EU and non-EU citizens in terms of their eligibility to come to the UK, that in the wake of that, we made the rules for non-EU citizens 
more liberal than they had been before we left the European Union. Yes, that's right. Um, and there was a, a lot of debate at the time about what that will do for the numbers. It was quite easy to come up with some projection of what would happen on the EU side, because we had people coming in and we knew how many of them were not going to be eligible, roughly, under the new system. Um, but when you liberalise, much like um, what happened, we discussed just discussed back in 2004, when you liberalise the system and open up a new route, it's actually quite difficult to project how many people around the world might feel like using it. Some of the increase in migration, we've seen a lot of people coming into the health service. Um, so doctors and nurses, for example, they've always been eligible under the system. It's just that um, the NHS has been hiring more of them than they did in the past, um, also uh, for reasons probably unrelated to Brexit. What we then also saw was there were some some of these uh, sort of Brexit-related liberalisations for non-EU um, had a really big impact. And so we've seen this really um, striking increase in the number of international students coming to the UK, for example, um, probably at least to some extent because they now have the opportunity to work after their studies. So there's um, basically a post-study work visa for two years. And that seems to have made the UK more attractive. That said, I don't think it necessarily could have been predicted that we would get, um, that we would have such a big increase, um, partly because we actually had a, a pretty similar regime in place around 2008, 9, 10. Um, and the numbers of students coming in then were much lower. And actually, I think this points to a general issue when you're talking about immigration numbers, which is that people like to think that the government really sort of controls the numbers and they'll have a policy and they'll say, okay, well, this is going to lead to an extra 60,000 people here or 20,000 fewer there. That's how we like to talk about, about migration. But actually, it's not really possible to predict how many people will use the policy. You can have, sometimes you have the same policy in place um, and large fluctuations in the numbers just because of other things, because of, you know, how much demand there is for people to, to move to the UK. So is a lesson to be drawn from the UK's experience in the last 20, 30 years is that politicians might talk about controlling immigration, but that actually, irrespective of the rules you have in place, immigration is something that proves to be very difficult to control, that is affected by a lot of other things like um, the state of the labour market, uh, the demographics of a country, it's even its exchange rate. Uh, that these are all things that make a difference over which in the end, perhaps politicians should maybe admitting they have rather less control than they're inclined to admit. Yeah, I think that's that's right. I mean, it depends obviously how you think about control. In one sense, um, the numbers that we've seen, you know, this is managed migration, the, the government is issuing visas for people to come to the country and it has decided to have policies that um, uh, that mean those visas will be issued. Um, what is harder to predict and therefore to control is the precise numbers. And so I think it's it's much easier for the government to say, we will we will admit this type of person. If you are a nurse coming to work in the NHS, you can get a visa to work here. It's it's harder for them to say, um, you know, we will have total net migration of 150,000. I think the key thing on the numbers is that the, the 600,000 um, is actually, it's likely to be a temporary blip of sorts. Now, obviously, I was just saying how difficult it is to predict what's going to happen. And so, and you know, before Brexit, I didn't think that net migration would, um, if you'd asked me then, I wouldn't have said that we'd have net migration of 600,000. So with that caveat, I think um, there is there is good reason to believe that, it, that over the next few years, the numbers will start to come down even without any policy changes. We've had a lot of international students coming in. And most of those people in the past, at least, have left within two to three years. 
Um, so what we expect, and actually with some colleagues at, um, at the London School of Economics recently, um, did some projections where we effectively said, OK, what happens if you have the same, roughly the same numbers of people coming in except for the Ukrainians um, uh, and, uh, and a couple of other categories? Uh, you know, if you have this high level of immigration over time, um, what happens uh, in the medium term? And actually, um, you see that if people leave at the same rates that they have done in the past, um, net migration would naturally um, fall to you know, somewhere in the 300,000 range, um, basically because of higher emigration of, of international students. And on sort of dependence and also uh, family reunification, which tend to kind of uh, spurt up in the news as controversial parts of the immigration system, how substantial are they? Um, dependents are more substantial than family unification. So family unification, that would be, um, for example, if um, if I marry an American, bring them, uh, you know, sponsor them to come to the country to join me as a British person, um, that would be family unification. The uh, dependents then, that's people coming, um, accompanying someone who is on a work visa or uh, usually a work or a study visa. Um and um, those numbers are much bigger at the moment, partly because um, the number of main applicants on those work and study visas has increased. We've seen a particular, it varies a lot. So they're, you know, one of the groups that uh, bring the largest number of dependents are people working in the health and care sector. Students tend not to bring many, many dependents, um, but the numbers have, um, have gone up quite a lot, uh, particularly because of dependence from um, dependence of Nigerian students. Um, but um, <clears throat> and there again, the, and there's been a policy, there's a, a policy that's been announced um, and will be implemented early next year, actually, to very significantly restrict dependence of, of students because the government was concerned about this the sharp increase that they were seeing. So we haven't talked about the one thing that is now dominating the headlines about immigration, which are about the boats coming across the English Channel. Um, so could you kind of briefly for us, Madeline, sketch out, as it were, the history of asylum applications and admissions to the UK over the last uh, 20 or 30 years or so? And, and where does the current experience fit in the longer term view of, about what's been happening in that area? Yeah, asylum applications are one of the categories that are most volatile. So we see these big um, spikes and then declines um, if you look back over the last 20 or 30 years. Um, they're currently high by historical comparison. So we had peaks in um, the early 1990s and then again in the um, the early 2000s. The highest number on record um, was in 2002 when there were just over 100,000 people included in asylum applications. And that was following um, the, the conflicts around that time in, in Afghanistan um, and, uh, and Somalia, also I think former Yugoslavia, and then slightly later Iraq. And after that, um, the, the numbers gradually declined, um, uh, actually re reaching relatively low um, numbers in sort of around 2014, 15. Um, but they've they've taken off in the last few years in, in particular. So in the, the last year of data we have, which is the year ending June uh, 2023, there were 97,000 people included in asylum applications. So only just very slightly below the um, the previous peak. It looks like those numbers are now starting to um, to level off and might, might decline. How typical is the UK's experience, both in terms of the rise in asylum applications and people trying to come across on boats or through other means, and also more generally in its migration patterns? Do we look like the rest of Western Europe? Do we look like the developed parts of Asia? Or are we totally different? 
I think we are reasonably typical. If you look over the medium term, one of the metrics that's quite comparable across countries is what share of that population were born in another country. Um, and so if you compare the UK to other you know, high-income OECD countries, we're sort of roughly in the middle of the pack, broadly similar to um, the United States or to, to Spain. Um, with you know, A few years ago, when we have comparable figures for all countries, it was looking around you know, maybe 14% or so of the population born abroad. Those numbers will have increased a little bit over the last, uh, last couple of years. So just to sum up, Madeleine, then, I think what you have described is this shift over the last several decades from the UK losing more people than it gains to being even without this kind of current big spike because of students in Ukraine and Hong Kong, a net importer of around 300,000 people a year, even before you look at asylum, which is kind of roughly um, coming up to 100,000 a year, it may decline. It's incredibly hard to predict what will happen in the future. We've generally got these predictions very wrong when things change. But we are we are probably a high net migration society. And it, it was interesting to me that you mentioned the United States as a kind of comparator country, because when I was growing up, uh, we thought of the US as the great migrant country. It was the place that, uh, as as opposed to Western Europe, and now it feels like we're all um, more similar. And that although a significant part of that is deliberate choices by the UK government, for example, bringing in lots of people to work in health, actually our rules tend to be in themselves relatively bad at predicting how many people are going to come in. So, so it's going to stay high, but we don't know exactly how high or how much it's going to change. Is, is that is that a fair summary of where we've come from and where we are? I think I think that's a pretty good summary, yeah. Thank you so much. I could have asked you questions all day. I, I kept <laughs> jumping over John because I had more questions I wanted to ask. It's a fascinating <laughs> subject and obviously matters a huge amount to the British public, which is what we are going to talk about next, John. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, no worries. Thanks for having me. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. So in the second half, we are going to talk about attitudes to migration. And I'm going to carry on my role as interviewer uh, in this episode and, and ask John about attitudes. She's a tough interrogator, <laughs> by the way, a tough interrogator. Not nearly as tough as you. Um, uh, so I'm going to ask John, what is the second set of big numbers on attitudes for the episode? Well, the second set of numbers is uh, what you might regard as an intriguing contrast. So if we look at an Ipsos uh, poll done for British Future, 
back in the summer of this year. On the one hand, 43% of us said that immigration is having a positive impact on the country, rather more than the 37% who said it was having a negative impact. Yet at the same time, nearly half of us said that they wanted migration reduced, yet only, and only 22% said they wanted to increase. So it seems as though we've got a bit of a paradox here, which is that people think on balance, maybe that immigration is a good thing for the country, but they're not too sure that they want much more of it. And what do you think is underlying that paradox, John? Is it simply we'd like some but not this much? Or is there something else going on? Well, I think certainly it points to perhaps a difference for people between what we might call the structure of immigration and the flow. So the fact that as a country, we already have a certain proportion of people who weren't born in the country, come from, come from elsewhere, and are now working in the health service, working in social care, as we've just been talking about with Madeleine. Um, that seems to be at least recognised to a degree as for something is useful. And of course, that's Certainly one of the things that's helped to fuel that is that you will remember a couple of years ago, we suddenly signed ourselves seemingly short of lorry drivers because we couldn't get some of the food into the supermarket shelves and into the petrol stations. We have uh, heard the stories about how the pig farmers couldn't get their pigs um, uh, slaughtered because um, of the lack of arbitrary workers. And these were all things that were arguments about whether or not Brexit had cut off the supply too much. So. Those things where people begin to say, well, hang on, I can see that these people are doing some good, they're, they're valuable, society is fine. But on the other hand, the idea that as a country, and again, we've said this is perhaps what we, is, going to be our, is going to be our lot, that we keep on taking on, as some people would put it, more and more migrants, seems to be a somewhat less attractive uh, prospect. Now, I mean, that said, we should say that it does also depend a bit on what kind of question you ask. And that, you know, so far I've kind of pointed to a couple of questions that ask people about immigration in general. Not for the first time when we're looking at attitudes, start looking at some of the detail and we get at something slightly different. And, um, you know, one of the details was interesting. There's more than one poll and survey that, have, that has done this starts asking people about whether we should make it easier or more difficult for people in certain occupational groups to come to the UK, or should they be increased or reduced? Or should there be a high priority or a low priority? There are different ways of doing this. What you find you discover is if you actually look at what happens if you ask about particular occupations, is you begin to get something that looks much more what I would call the perceived social worth of the occupation. Hate the bankers, love the nurses. Exactly. So doctors, nurses are not far behind, although they are supposedly unskilled, care home workers. So people who look after us are valued. And to some degree, some of the polling suggests that, you know, fruit pickers, which kind of Many of us are not willing to do, but people seem to be willing to come here and do it. That's reasonably acceptable. But yes, you're right. One group above all, highly skilled, earn a great deal of money, but we don't think we need any more of them, are bankers. Um, so the point is, therefore, that once you start uh, looking in terms of economic worth, it isn't just simply of wages. It's about the value of the occupation. But it's also, frankly, it's also a cultural issue. Okay, to what extent... Uh, do people find it acceptable and enticing 
or difficult to live in a multicultural society. And certainly, perhaps not surprisingly, again, the research evidence suggests that people from Australia, from Canada, from the English-speaking white, historically at least, Commonwealth, is one group that we are relatively willing to accept, other things being equal. Those from Pakistan, from a Muslim background, and those from a, 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 a non-English speaking background, less so, with uh, therefore as a result of the West Europeans being in between. Of course, many West Europeans and English may not be their first language, but for many of them, it's the lingua franca, at least at a professional level, so they'll have, they'll have good English. And we frankly find it somewhat easier to admit people whom we think are more like us, or at least more like uh, the majority uh, population uh, than those who come from somewhat more uh, diverse backgrounds. The other thing that I certainly picked up in focus groups, and I'd be interested if you have much polling evidence on it, is the link between immigration and other parts of public policy. So I found frequently, for example, that when we talk about housing, what comes up is the pressure that high levels of immigration put on housing and that this is forcing people to accept more housing in their area than they would otherwise like. Or in the health service, for example, while people are very keen, as you said, on nurses coming in, they are also very keen on asking migrants to contribute more into the health service before they can get anything out. Uh, it's very popular to ask people to put more into, to, to not be able to claim benefits for several years if they're migrants. So there, there, there are these touch points with all other parts of public policy and spending that quite often intermingle with people's views on migration. Is is that something you've picked up in the polling? Yeah, I mean, I mean, certainly polling I have done does suggest that pe people don't necessarily think that people should be, have to be here a very long time before they can access the social security system or the health system. But they certainly think that there should be a period of time that they are here uh, before, uh, they, before they can work. But of course, the other thing we should then say, of course, is that, you know, it's not as though attitudes towards immigration are undifferentiated. Okay. Um, it's something where attitudes do have some really big demographic differences. Demographic difference number one is essentially graduates versus the rest of society. Graduates are like everything else these days. Like so many other things. Like, yeah, of course, it was also true of Brexit, but that's <laughs> part of the reason why it was like that for Brexit because of the role of immigration. So graduates are relatively comfortable with immigration non-graduates not. Now, I would say there are two reasons for this. One is it's cultural. Um, universities are relatively cosmopolitan experiences. We've been talking about the large number of international students they, they, they create at the moment. And to that extent, at least, and, and universities as institutions tend to think internationally. They don't simply think of themselves as national institutions. So therefore, you create a climate of thinking at a global level. Um, so that's one thing. The second thing, of course, is that graduates are more likely to have the labour market skills. That means that they could actually, like the freedom of movement, go off to Barcelona or Berlin and earn, um, uh, earn a very substantial living. So they also have a difference of real interest. The stereotype as well, and I don't know if this is fair, is that graduates are also likely to benefit from lower price immigrant labour, right? Like, So the criticism is if you're a graduate, you can afford your cleaner on lower price uh, labour. But if you're a non-graduate, you're competing against those people and you can't charge as much. Absolutely. And um, there is no doubt that um, I've heard this from those you know, on the right arguing very much that in a sense, you know, part of the way in which they popularise the idea 
and is, in a sense it becomes populist politics to say, well, look, it's great, it's fine for the elite because the elite profit from the uh, immigration that goes on, including finding childminders, nannies and all the rest of it, um, whereas the rest of us are left with very expensive childcare that we can't afford um, and we can't therefore afford to go to work. Yeah, th that's also undoubtedly an issue. But the, other, the, other, the other division that's there demographically is by age. Younger people are much more comfortable about immigration than our older people. That's certainly thought in some of the literature to be a consequence of the fact that younger people are more likely to be brought up in a society which has been experiencing higher levels of immigration, has more migrants in it. And of course, our educational system now is very, very much one that promotes multiculturalism. You know, I mean, the idea is when, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember Jonathan John books when, you know, all the reading books only ever contained white men and white women. Those days are long, long uh, since over. We are now in, we're now promoting different values. So it's therefore argued that, you know, younger people are essentially therefore being socialized into a, a different kind of society. And of course, insofar as one of the cries that sometimes comes from people about immigration is, this is not the country that I was brought up in. That's clearly something that you're much more likely to say that if you are older than if you are younger, because you are able to contrast your experience now with your experience 30, 40 years ago. And as Madeline told us earlier, net migration was an awful lot uh, uh, lower uh, many years ago. And one of the things I think is interesting is you, you referred to the left earlier, John, but but there's mm -hmm. obviously a traditional version of the left, which is your working class voter who hates the bankers and thinks they should be taxed much more, um, but who is, I think, relatively anti-migrant. And at least the perception is that one of the things that's changed over the last several years, partly post-Brexit, is that people who were historically, at least culturally on the left, voted Labour, moved to the Conservative Party, partly because of migration and cultural changes, and they tend to be older, but they are also quite working class. And that graduates who are on relatively high incomes, who you would have thought of as being pro-entrepreneurship and quite light low taxes and are relatively high earning, have moved leftwards, again, partly because the economics doesn't stock up, but also because of issues like this. Yeah, I mean, this is all part of the Brexit story. The division between party supporters on Brexit are, are very, very clear. Amongst Conservative voters, slightly more people think that immigration is having a negative impact on the country than having a positive impact. Amongst Labour voters, in contrast, it's almost two to one in the opposite direction. Um, and equally, um, uh, you know, Conservative voters are much more likely to say that immigration should be reduced than it should be increased. And again, that division is also reflected in terms of you know, leave and remain support. So you know, there is a political divide here. Um, and it is a divide whereby because the Labour Party is still very much a party heavily dependent on younger voters, heavily dependent um, on graduates, and also, by the way, still very heavily dependent on the support of those who want to be inside the European Union. Yes, Labour voters are much more sympathetic to immigration, much more supportive of it than their Conservative counterparts. And that's undoubtedly one of the reasons why the Conservatives feel that trying to politicise the immigration issue is uh, to their benefit. That said... We should, however, talk about our other big number, Rachel, because we've been talking about where we're at now, but of course we've not been talking about 
where we are now as compared with the past. And couple, let me give you, give you a couple of things. One very long term, and again, actually, we have to thank the work of the Migration Observatory here, but um, which has reminded me, the British Elections Study, which is the big academic study, whereas we have a question about whether or not Britain has too many migrants or not, which goes all the way back to the 1960s. And this is going back to the era, of course, of Enoch Powell and the controversy about his rivers of blood speech. And when immigration was again also, uh, particularly in the 1970 election, an important issue. At that point, we were talking about 85, 86% of people saying Britain was getting too many migrants. Now, by 2015, not long before the referendum, it was still high. But even at 71%, it was lower than it was uh, back in 1979. Um, and most recently, the time of the election, it was down to 52%. That's part of a broader story. Intriguingly, over the course of the last decade, for reasons that aren't entirely clear, but the change is dramatic, we have become much more sympathetic about immigration, much more likely to think that it does the country good. And let me just give you one example. British social attitudes, which as we said before, I have some responsibility for. Do people think that immigration is good or bad for the economy? If you go back to 2011, when the question was first asked, 43% um, of people thought it was bad for the country. Only 21% of people thought it was good. Now, only 17% think it's bad and 50% think it is good. So. Although immigration is hot political potato, um, although it's something that was very central to the Brexit debate, actually, not only as the history not turned out, perhaps as many people in the Brexit debate imagined, but public opinion is not where it was at uh, seven years ago either. So I think there are a couple of interesting things here. The first is... To a more marked extent than when we talked about crime last week, but I still think it's a roughly the same pattern. People are becoming more liberal, but that doesn't mean they are entirely liberal. So I think that that's one thing that is probably worth stressing. You may disagree with that, John. The second, and this maybe leads us into the question about asylum before we finish the episode, is how much concern about immigration and views about immigration are themselves a reflection of how politicians talk about it. So when I was working in the, 20, uh, the sort of 2019 uh, manifesto campaign, uh, manifesto for the Conservative Party, um, there was a strong view that we needed to talk about resetting the immigration system as part of demonstrating that uh, things were going to change after Brexit. But that itself had come after this kind of roller coaster in the Conservative Party, at least, about how much people wanted to talk about immigration and how much they wanted to drive politics through it. So there was the 2005 infamous campaign by Michael Howard, which was very much about immigration. Are you thinking what we're thinking, sort of slightly Enoch Powell-like? Then there was a period where if you were working in, in the Conservative Party, you were told under no circumstances to ever mention immigration because it was obviously death. And then through to Nigel Farage talking about it a lot, it becoming quite a big uh, issue in electoral politics, at least on the right again. And then finally, um, in 2019, where the Australian point system was the kind of golden way of talking about immigration, although as Madeline has described, it hasn't hasn't actually reduced it at all. In fact, it's it's gone up. So it, it's changed over time, at least on the right, in terms of how much people wanted to talk about it and, and felt that it was important to talk about it. I guess the question for this, and then also for asylum is, 
does how much people care about it depend in part by how much it's in the newspapers and how much politicians are choosing to make it an issue? Yeah, sure. I, I mean, you know, undoubtedly, that at least is part of the story of what's going on, um, is that when politicians talk about immigration, it tends to go up the um, to go up the levels of concern. Although, of course, you know, reality also makes a difference. And of course, you know, one of the reasons why it became less of an issue, well, one, COVID, to the cost of living crisis. In other words, we've had other things uh, to worry about. Uh, that said, um, I mean, the polling data from Ipsos, which tracks people's concerns about uh, issues and one of the most important issues faced in the country, you know, has found over the last 12 months or so that immigration has kind of gone back up again. Uh, and almost undoubtedly what lies behind this is not so much the debate about what the government terms legal immigration, but the debate about what the government at least terms, although others dispute this term, illegal um, uh, immigration, which of course is a sign. And of course, that's what they're choosing to talk about. That's what they're choosing to talk about. Now, there are arguably two reasons why you might think they're talking about it. Reason number one is that because actually this is a bit of an embarrassment. At the end of the day, the, the big slogan in 2016 was take back control. And at least with legal immigration, although we may not be able to control the consequences, at least we control the system of application and visas, etc. And there's quite a lot of evidence out there that uh, for people, it's more the qu a question of control and being seen to be in control that was the issue about immigration, rather than necessarily the issue of absolute numbers. So that's arguably by what's going. It's a, def it's, a, it's a defensive mechanism. Otherwise, it gives the opposition an opportunity to attack, much as the Conservative opposition attacked the Labour Party, when, as Madeleine referred to earlier, levels of asylum were very, very high at the beginning of this century. But the second reason, I think, almost undoubtedly, is that the Conservative Party thinks that perhaps focusing on this issue, which is one where Conservative voters and Labour voters have very different views, and I'll say a little bit more about that in a moment, um, I therefore think that perhaps this is one of the ways in which the government might be able to reclaim some of those voters that they have lost. And of course, the government is a long way behind uh, in the opinion polls. And at least particularly might be able to do so if indeed they can actually succeed in stopping the boats. Um, so, you know, given what I've already said about attitudes towards immigration, we shouldn't be surprised that there is a division. It's a pretty stark division. I mean, let's just, for example, take... Um, whether or not people support the idea of sending some asylum seekers uh, to Rwanda, which is, um, you know, as it were, the most controversial bit of the government's policy. Um, here's one poll from uh, YouGov back in the summer. Overall, in this particular poll, 42% in favour, 39% opposed. But Conservative supporters, 70% in favour, 16% opposed. Labour supporters, 21% support, 65% opposed. And there's other polling out there, not dissimilar, although I think probably slightly more polls that have across the aggregate more people supporting than opposing. But that's essentially because Labour supporters just not quite so strong in their opposition as Conservative supporters are in their support. So you can certainly see that this is a big division. And you can certainly see why the government might think that this is a way of reclaiming some Conservative voters. However, and this is often an important point in understanding public attitudes and why it relates to voting behaviours. Simply because an issue is related 
cross-sectionally to whether or not people support a party doesn't necessarily mean that it's an issue that explains the movement from one party to another. Meaning if you if you care about votes, you're probably not going to vote Labour. Yeah, sure. But the, but the point is that irrespective of whether or not you think immigration at the moment is too high or not, and a lot of conservative people who voted conservative in, in 2019 think it's too high, their chances of saying they will no longer vote conservative, there's very little difference in that loyalty rate between those who think we've now got too much immigration and those who don't hold that view, who voted Conservative in 2019. So in other words, the link between people's perceptions of immigration, this by the way also is true of, of, of so-called illegal immigration, the, the link between people's attitudes towards what's been going on and their chances of defecting from the Conservatives, that link is pretty weak. Much weaker than the link between their perception of what's going on in the economy or their perception of the state of the health service. So although this looks like an issue, which should enable the Conservative Party to appeal to core voters, at least so far at least, whether or not that's going to work is doubtful because it do this doesn't seem to be amongst the plethora of reason potential reasons as to why people have defected from the Conservatives doesn't seem to be a particularly important reason. Uh, now, that therefore makes it at least less likely that even if the boats are stopped, that this is going to be a particularly effective way of persuading voters to come back into the Conservative fold. And I would just add a, a simpler point to that, which is that um, it's really not a brilliant idea to talk about this endlessly if you think the boats aren't going to stop. And so far, it's not completely clear that uh, there is a very strong link between the amount the Conservative Party is talking about this and how much boats are declining. One lesson for Madeleine is, you know, be careful what you promise on immigration. is the end of Trendy for this week. Remember, if you've got any thoughts or questions for us, then you can email trendy at tortoisemedia.com. I'm Rachel Wolfe. And I'm John Curtis. New episodes are published every Thursday. Do rate and review us. It really helps people find us. And follow the feed so you don't miss an episode. Thanks for listening. Tortoise.